Good afternoon. Thank you guys for coming out today. Uh, today it's a pleasure to introduce Dr. Burton Lee, who's an associate professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine and in the pulmonary critical care section at Washington Hospital Center uh, MedStar. So Bert was my, um, I guess he was my associate program director for, for residency and was the reason why I chose to go into critical care medicine. And if you guys heard his last lecture, and some of his other things that he's, that he's done in terms of education, you can understand why he was a motivating factor. And he's taken his skills and, and actually um, put them to work in Kenya. And starting July is gonna be full-time in, in Kenya after having done some time there already. But is still gonna be involved in the education of our fellows um, through our regional initiatives that he set up um, between Baltimore and DC. And, it's a pleasure to introduce him today, and we're already late, so I won't keep going on. Thanks, Bert, for coming up. Okay, uh, uh, so we wanted to uh, follow up on the last lecture that was given um, a month ago or so. And if you remember, we talked about the concept of numeracy and apophenia, and we're gonna uh, maybe uh, take that to the second half of this. So we're gonna talk about uh, sample sizes uh, superstitious students and superb studies, okay? So uh, if you remember, this is a slide I put up last time, which is, uh, you know, we hope to be making evidence-based decisions that are based on good science. Of course, uh, one of many features of good science is that it should be repeatable. That is, if I do it and I show that something works, you know, you know let's say in D.C., then you should be able to follow what I did and, and then also be able to replicate whatever scientific finding I have. But how repeatable is, is science? Uh, so we, we talked about uh, you know, this one paper where they took um, uh, 34 highly cited uh, clinical articles that had at least 1,000 citations or more, and they try to see you know, you know, what happens if later on somebody tries to uh, replicate the findings and they were only able to confirm 20 of the 34 or 59%. A, a very similar article by Prasad looked only at the New England Journal of Medicine articles uh, that were retesting an, an established clinical practice. And again, the, the findings were very similar. They were only able to replicate 46%. And then in, in, in the basic science world, here's a paper by Begley in Nature that looked at 53 landmark studies in the field of hematology oncology, and again, replication rate was very low. It was 11%. So uh, whatever the replication rate is, whether it's 10% or 60%, there's a significant amount of what we believe today that cannot be replicated. So, um, so what are some of the reasons for this poor replication? And we kind of introduce you to the idea of medical reversals. That is, you know, one year we think that everybody should be doing this, and then five years later we say, oops, never mind, don't do that anymore because the studies no longer support that. And so there are basically three major uh, categories of reasons why uh, medical reversals occur. One is poor methodology, the other is conflict of interest, and then third is this idea of innumeracy, which is what we've been talking about in the last lecture and this one. So, uh, so this is why, you know, like for you to be a true expert in the field of critical care medicine or pulmonary medicine, uh, you need to uh, have a, uh, a, a deep 
workable understanding of these concepts like critical appraisals uh, of the randomized controlled trials or systematic reviews, uh, have a good understanding of the influence of ethics uh, and conflict of interest in, in, in research and science in particular, and then the topic uh, that we've been, we've been talking about, which is the idea of numeracy. So last time, we, we explained the concept of numeracy as being something similar to the concept of literacy, and that is that you know, you know, there's nobody in this room who is illiterate because you would not have made it this far if you couldn't read and write. But unfortunately, uh, research shows that most physicians, or you know, at least many physicians, are actually innumerate. That is, you don't have a functional knowledge uh, that you can apply to understanding basic mathematical concepts that are relevant to understanding the literature. So, that, so that's the idea of numeracy. And then apophenia is one aspect of numeracy that is really pervasive that, that, that many of us fail to grasp, and that is basically the phenomena of the human nature tends to see meaning or patterns in randomness or meaningless data. So we gave an example of this uh, cheese sandwich, uh, which is just a random pattern, but we all tend to see faces there. And that cheese sandwich sold for, you know, like for twenty or $30,000 uh, because of the apophenia. And then if we look at the cloud over there, we can't help but see pattern. Uh, I think most of us will see a horse or something like that. Uh, and even if, even if you know that that's randomness, we still see the pattern. Well, if that apophenia applies to scientific literature, what can happen to us is, is what we uh, might be looking at is just random data, but we tend to see meaning or pattern. And that's where we get into uh, um, uh, wrong understandings or interpretations of the literature. And then, of course, that makes it much more likely that that finding will be reversed. So, uh, we, so last time we talked about the concepts of multiple testing, um, outcome changes, and publication bias, and then especially when it's applied to subgroup analysis, how uh, all of these apophenia uh, can really affect the interpretation of, uh, of scientific uh, literature. So to overcome the concept of multiple testing, we talked about how important it is to have one primary outcome, not multiple outcomes. The other one was to not to have outcome changes, which of course is the reason why we now require for a publication in major clinical journals that you register whatever outcome it is that you want to look at. Uh, and then to avoid publication bias, you want to look at all of the, uh, all of the studies that are, that are relevant to that topic, not just the ones that are published or the, or the ones that are well known. And then all of these are especially important for subgroup analyses. So we need to understand that we need to pre-specify which subgroups you want to look at, uh, and that ultimately they're for hypothesis generation, not for hypothesis testing. So that's just a quick recap of the stuff that we talked about last time. And so now we want to get into the second half of this, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which is numeracy part two. And we want to revisit the concept of apophenia as it applies to some additional ideas. So, um, so as, a, um, as a quiz, uh, let me have you think about this particular question, which is, uh, if you're flipping a fair coin, which of the following is more likely to occur? So let's say it's either heads or tails, of course. So is it uh, seven heads out of 10 or 700 heads out of 1,000? or both are equally likely. So if you understand that it's a fair coin, 
what's the most likely outcome as far as the number of heads if you flip 10 times? So hopefully you can figure out that it should be about half, so it should be five. And what is it if you flip 1,000 times? Again, it should be about half, so the most, uh, most likely outcome is going to be 500 heads out of 1,000 or five heads out of 10. But if you look at these, so how many people think it's A, that seven heads out of 10 is the most likely, B, 700 heads out of 1,000 is most likely, or C, that both are equally likely? Anybody for A? Okay, for B? For C? Okay, good. So, um, so this actually was given as a real uh, uh, research question to the math and science teachers in this country. And, uh, and these are people that are you know, teaching our children. Um, and the most popular answer here was actually C, that both are equally likely. Okay? Um, and so, um, so I, I don't have a, the iPad, which I was hoping to get it to work, so I'll, I'll kind of have to do it and not write, but you'll have to kind of uh, work with me, so my apologies. But I brought a, a bag of marbles here uh, for this illustration because this is really an important concept that, that's applicable to science. So some of these marbles are blue and some of them are pink, okay? So I'm going to just randomly grab in here uh, just three marbles, and then I will show you uh, what the marbles are. And there was no trick there. I just uh, I did sincerely dropped them, okay? So I have three, um, three pink marbles, okay? So uh, on a scale of 0 to 100%, okay, what's your best estimate as to how many, uh, let's say, blue marbles are in this bag? So based on this sample, you would say it's 0. Okay? However, what's the most, uh, um, um, where is the truth? That is, you know, what's the minimum number of blues and what's the maximum number of blues out of, let's say, out of 100 uh, marbles in this bag? So it could still be zero because that's where my point estimate is. But what's the maximum number of blues I could possibly have? 97. So if that's clear, it's from zero to 97, although my point estimate is zero. Okay? So I'm going to put these back so that I don't mess up the, uh, uh, the ratios. I'm going to grab uh, maybe three more just to show you again what, what a different sampling would look like. And so I have one blue marble this time out of three. Okay? So now, what's your best estimate as to um, uh, the number of blue marbles based on this particular sample? So now it's going to be 33 percent. And what's the minimum? One. And then what's the maximum? 98. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to put these back, and then grab one final time, perhaps. And then here is three pink marbles again. So it's the exact same thing as, as the first scenario, okay? So again, think about the point estimate and then think about the possible range from low to high. And I'm going to deliberately now mix it up again, and then I'm going to just sample maybe 30 marbles or so. So here's 3, 6, 10, there's 11, 16, and then here's 20. So I have a total of four blue marbles this time, okay? Now, what's the point estimate if, you, if I were to consider four blue marbles out of, uh, out of 20? It's going to be one-fifth, so about 20%. And what's now my range? 
What's the minimum number of blues? Four, and then what's the maximum? Okay, and I wish I had a pen to draw, but if you were to draw that confidence interval, how does that confidence interval change when I sample just three versus now 20? So when I have more samples, my confidence interval gets narrower, right? Okay, now what kind of a confidence interval am I drawing? Am I drawing a, uh, a, uh, a a 50% confidence interval, 95% confidence interval, 100% confidence interval. Yeah, so what I'm doing, because there's 100 marbles in here, is it's 100%. The truth has to be somewhere between the ranges that I pick. Okay? So, and then as you know, we usually pick 95% confidence interval. So if my 100% confidence interval is this wide, what would my 95 confidence interval be? Would it be narrower or wider or the same? You'll be narrower because 95%, I'm going to be wrong some of the time, right? About 5% of the time, I'm going to be wrong. So I'll have a narrower confidence interval. But the idea is that more samples I take, okay, the narrower the confidence interval is going to be. So the sample size affects how likely I'm going to get these uh, extraneous values. So um, if that makes sense, okay, then uh, since I'm only flipping 10 times, I'm more likely to get an abnormal or a non-average number, okay? As opposed to if I flip a thousand times, it would be very, very unlikely to get an extreme value like 700 uh, heads out of, a th out of a thousand flips. So is that pretty clear to everybody? Okay, good. So, um, so now uh, I wanted to apply that hopefully simple concept to some, some data. So this is uh, catheter-related bloodstream infection data. Um, and uh, I, I believe some of, this, um, of these numbers may have changed recently, but the old CDC threshold for where you were doing good versus not so good used to be 5.3, okay? So those are the actual data uh, you know, from, an, uh, from an intensive care unit. So as you can see, they range from as low as zero to as much as 7.1, and that's per 10,000 line days. So um, the, one of the issues with catheter-related bloodstream infection, of course, is it's a marker of your quality of care, and we want to minimize these things, but there's also now an external incentive, right? Because now, uh, now the government says we're not going to pay you if you have these kind of complications, so there's a huge financial pressure to make sure that you avoid these things. So when, when, uh, when the hospital administration were to look at something like this, they would say, well, looks like overall we're doing pretty well, but that 7.1 is really not acceptable. And even the quarter before, a 5.4, uh, may also be uh, an issue. And so uh, you might actually say, well, let's see what we can do about it, and let's do an intervention. And in fact, that's what happened in this particular ICU, and that is that they... Um, 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 hired a bunch of people, uh, infection control nurses. They put a lot of uh, educational efforts to house staff and fellows and, and, and attendings and nurses alike. Uh, and they, you know, they put in uh, extra equipment and spend actually quite a bit of money so that this doesn't happen again. So what do you think happened to the catheter-related bloodstream infection rates after this intervention? It went down. And so as you can see, it was quite successful so there was actually some celebration 
and I think the, uh, the ICU got some pizzas, okay, <laughs> to, uh, to say we did a good job. And then came quarter three, and it went back up to 6.1. So he said, uh-oh, you guys are slacking off again. Uh, and then they said, let's do another intervention. So they again spent more money and did more ed education. Uh, and then it went down again. So pretty nice. Yeah, so it, it underscores the importance of stressing, you know, all the things that we should be doing to take proper care of patients getting a central line. Now, what is potentially wrong with this kind of data? Because it's this kind of uh, data that, that both governments and hospitals and military, you know, we all look at this kind of data, and of course it could be real, but it could also be uh, apophenia. So how can something like this be just apophenia or randomness? Okay? So one concept is, is regression to the mean, which we'll, which we'll come back to. But how, how might this relate to what we just talked about, which is sample size? Okay, so one is maybe, maybe fewer overall lines, okay? And, but this is really a, 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 an important fundamental concept, which is uh, how many actual infections were there per each quarter, okay? So that's the actual number of infections. So it's a very small sample in terms of the actual number of infections, so what do you expect? Do you expect it to be a narrow range or a wide range uh, if you're using that as an estimate of the, of the true central line infection rates? And so, um, so um, after this, uh, actually there was some talk in the hospital to say, you know, this is so important, we should be looking at it not quarterly, but we should be looking at the data on a monthly basis. Okay, which would be the exact opposite of what you should be doing because you're going to be really confused if you look at uh, you know, even smaller um, um, parts of the data. In fact, these are the annual averages, year one, year two, year three. So what do you notice about the variation in the quarterly data versus the yearly data? There is relatively little variation in the yearly data because now you're getting a bigger sample size. Okay? So it's a very simple concept, but, but you might actually do a lot of silly things thinking that you're doing a lot of good if you don't understand this concept of uh, apophenia. Okay? So the basic concept is, is quite simple. That is, small samples, in this case quarterly or monthly, there's a lot more variation or a lot more noise. But larger samples, in this case yearly or, uh, or even longer, there is much less noise, and therefore it's more likely to be real. Okay? Does that make sense? And so that concept is called the law of small numbers. It's, okay? It's not, a, it's not a very complicated idea, but often uh, doesn't get appreciated, and so a lot of maybe uh, um, random decisions get made that don't help. So again, this is an example of the apophenia that we've been talking about. Okay? So, uh, so one concept is sample size, and, and remember the law of small numbers, okay? Um, so now, uh, let me ask a, set, a, a second question. So, uh, so some of you guys are um, emergency medicine doctors as well, uh, and let's say a medical student says to the resident, wow, it's really slow right now. And, the, and then the resident reprimands the student and says, you just jinxed the night. Never say that again. So what's the most appropriate statement uh, regarding this scenario? A, the night will likely get busier. 
or B, the residents should now knock on wood to reverse this jinx, or C, this is a mere superstition, okay? So how many people think A, okay? A few of you, okay? How many, how many people think B, okay? <laughs> A few of you, and then, <laughs> and how about C, okay? I think probably about half of you. So, you know, this is a pretty common thing, right? I'm sure you've all appreciated this. Uh, it's very, very quiet, and you, and you say, you know what? I, I hope it stays quiet. Well, this is um, actually a, a fairly common uh, misunderstanding as well. And so let me, go back to, let me go back to this data here. So once, one relatively simple way to think about this is what's the average number of central line, line infections per 10,000 line days? Approximately. Four, four right? So if it's approximately four, what's the most likely number that's going to show up there? It's going to be four, right? So if you, if you didn't do anything, the most likely thing that's going to happen is the average, okay? So that would be a four. And so, so what you're going to tend to find is that whether you had this intervention or whether you knocked on wood or whether you sacrifice a virgin to the volcano, okay, the chances are it's going to go back to the average, okay? And that's the concept of what? Regression to the mean, okay? I think most of you understand that, but problem is we don't always remember to apply it in real clinical uh, or medical situations. So if you notice, it basically reflected what the most likely number is going to be, okay? So, um, so let me give you a, uh, another example of this. Um, and so, um, so let's say that uh, we have some random events going on, okay? So I'm going to actually maybe just uh, pass out some dice, okay? So I'd like you to grab uh, maybe two dice, okay? So, so let's say that this was the catheter-related bloodstream infection rates, but it's all just basically random variation from sample to sample rather than any true effect, okay? But um, so why don't we point out the people or the ICUs that are screwing up, okay? So let's just say it's, it's people who had uh, 11 or 12. I think that's just only one person. Is that right? Okay. So how many 11s did you get? One, one 11. And then how, how many people had, had at least one 10? Okay. So, so why, don't, why don't three of you who are these bad ICUs, okay, why don't you roll the dice again? Oh, wait, 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 wait. But, be, but after you receive this in very important intervention, okay? So I'd like the three of you to stand up, okay? And I'd like you to circle around three times, okay? And then as you circle, I'd like you to say that Burton is a very tall and handsome man. <laughs> okay? So now, now I've made this incredibly scientific and important intervention to solve your ICU problem, okay? So now I'd like you to re-roll re the dice and tell me what you have. Three, three, six. So what just happened? Okay, we just had tens and elevens. It was a horrible ICU. So I must be very tall and handsome because it clearly worked, right? And that's what's happening um, often when you make interventions without true scientific basis. Okay. So obviously this is a silly example, but there are estimates that we waste actually billions of dollars around the uh, uh, around the world. Uh, because of this concept that we don't appreciate, 
both in medicine and in science and in government and, uh, and in many other places. Does that concept make sense? Okay. The most likely thing is that it's going to go to the average number, but since I've only selected the extreme values, the most likely thing that's going to happen next is the average. So it will tend to go down. Not, it's not a guarantee it will go down, but most likely thing that's going to happen is to go down. If you don't believe me, just go home and, and, and try it you know, you know, um, on your own or with your spouse or roommate because it, it, will, it will basically work just about every single time. Okay? Okay. So, um, so the, a, a similar medical uh, example is, uh, let's say um, Dr. McCurdy is an old man and he has uh, a non-lethal uh, disease that's giving him severe amounts of chronic pain. Okay? So, so he's having pain, and then, then like any other chronic condition, it's going to go up and go down in terms of his illness, right? But when will he come and see me as the doctor? When things are going poorly or when things are going really well? Okay? So again, the, the chances are is he's going to come and see me when he's doing very poorly, and then I could have anything to really offer him potentially, whether it could be a truly effective medicine or it could be something uh, that's not effective or it could be some, you know, you know, uh, some alternative medicine. But chances are he's going to get better if we don't appreciate this concept of uh, regression to the mean. And then you're going to be very, very certain. Okay? Now, now uh, it's again apophenia, and I joked about sacrificing uh, you know, virgins to the volcano god, but, but that's basically uh, what we're doing, and that may be understandable for a pre-literate society to have these kind of random associations, but that is obviously not acceptable for a, a body of people who are highly educated and then who are responsible for patient lives to mistake superstitions for science. Okay? Okay. Um, so concept number one is a sample size, law of small numbers. Concept number two is the superstitious student, which is the idea of regression to the mean. And then we'll go to the final uh, concept here. Um, so, and, and that's the concept of a superb study. Now, let's pretend that you have a flawless randomized controlled trial for septic shock patients. Okay? And this, this study demonstrates that a particular intervention uh, reduces the 28-day mortality from 46% down to 30% with a significant p-value of less than 0.05. And unlike most studies, let's say this is a completely flawless study. Okay, you read it backwards and forwards and you've talked to the original investigators and you tried really hard to find a flaw, but you can't because this is really a well-done study and it's perfect. Okay? So, Remember, even if, even if it's perfect, there is a chance that apophenia is going to occur, right? That is, even if it really uh, isn't effective, you might randomly, just by chance, find it to be different, okay? And so we talked about this last time, but that is the concept of alpha error, okay, which is what apophenia is really important in, okay? So alpha error assumes that it doesn't really work but about 5% of the time, that's what we have decided to accept as a scientific community, that in error, you're going to actually find something to be different. Okay? So if you're wrong 5% of the time, in, in, in that sense, and then you are now holding in front of you this perfect article in the New England Journal of Medicine, 
that says that this, this drug reduces mortality, what's the probability that the drug is actually effective? Because isn't that what you really want to know, is that you're holding this article, and it's a perfect study, so how much confidence should I put in that paper? So how many people think it's A, about 50%? Nobody? And then how about about 80%? And then how about C, about 95%? Okay, so for those of you who are participating, that's the most common answer. And how many of you have no idea? <laughs> okay, maybe some of you, yeah? So, um, so actually, what you just uh, demonstrated for us is this idea of inversion fallacy, okay? Uh, because actually, the correct answer is uh, is not 95 percent, and but that's commonly what people think, especially I mean I mean not especially, but including uh, people who are quite sophisticated in in uh, research even. So, so the concept has to go back to. Uh, this Bayesian analogy, uh, but let's start with a common expression that you've all heard before, which is, is this Pope Catholic? Okay, so it's meant, you know, obviously as a joke sometimes or as a sarcastic comment, but let's break that phrase, is the Pope Catholic, into a Bayesian expression, and Bayesian expression is simply saying, what's the probability of A happening given the truth that B is, 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 uh, um, is happening or true. So what's given is B, and you want to know what the probability of, of A occurring is. Okay. So in the statement, is this Pope Catholic, what's the given statement or what's B? The Pope, okay? So Pope, and you want to know, given this Pope, what's the probability that he is Catholic? Okay, so what's the answer to that? Okay, so theoretically, it should be 100%. Okay? Now, is that the same thing as if you were to flip around the order? So, for example, if you were to ask instead, okay, is this Catholic the Pope? Is that the equivalent of the other? Okay? Because how many... Uh, uh, and so what's the given statement, um, the, the given condition for that statement? It's, it's, it's this Catholic person, right? And then you want to know what's the probability that this person is a pope. So it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's an inversion of the Catholic slash pope and pope slash Catholic, right? So, of course, if you break this down, and hopefully this is very intuitive, but let's be a little bit more formal for the, our next slide purposes. Let's look at all the potential people in the world. If you look at everybody in the world, you can divide them into two types. Okay, so Catholics and non-Catholics for our purposes. Okay, um, you can also divide everybody in the world as being Pope and not Pope. Okay, so it's two different ways to divide the world. Now, if you have the statement that says, um, "Is this Pope Catholic?" That's what's circled in there, right? Remember, the given condition is the Pope. You're starting out with a person who is the Pope, right? And you want to know what's the likelihood this person is Catholic. So you're going in that direction of the arrow. You're only looking at the popes now. And the probability that this person is Catholic is what? Okay, it should be 100%. I guess there's two popes now, but I think the, I think the ratio is still 100%. Yeah? Now, what if you were to invert this so that you're asking a similar but a different question, which is, is this person, uh, is this Catholic person, the pope, 
Well, you're starting with a Catholic person, so how many Catholics are there? And I don't have a true estimate, but let's, let's assume for our purposes that there's a billion Catholics in the world. Okay? So if there's a billion Catholics, how many of them are uh, or is the Pope? Just that one person, right? So, um, so it ends up becoming one out of a billion people. Okay? And if you know that 100% or one out of one billion, you know the exact opposite, which is of the popes, theoretically nobody should be not Catholic, and then of the Catholics, the remainder, that is 999,999,999 people out of a billion are not the pope. So does that make sense to everybody, hopefully? Okay, so, so, so I want to start with a silly example because it's this concept that gets confused and we misunderstand how likely a, a particular study is to be true. So now, let's go back to uh, this, this, this perfect, flawless study in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, if you want to read more about it, uh, that's the reference by, uh, by John Ioannidis on there. But um, you can also divide all the potential treatments for sepsis into two worlds. Okay? One world says some of these treatments that I'm thinking about are truly effective. So for our purposes, we'll call it TE for, uh, uh, for truly effective. And then the rest of them will be truly not effective. Okay? Some things will truly work, some things will truly not work. But you can also divide this world into what's apparently effective and apparently not effective. Okay? So the difference is this is the absolute truth. But this is what you see, let's say, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay? So this says that this is a perfect study and p-value is less than 0.05, and this is p-value is not significant. Okay? So we have TEs, TNEs, AEs, and ANEs. Now, that gives you four different potential permutations. Okay? Some of those are the truth, and some of those are errors. Which of those four boxes contain errors? So the top right, the, it truly not effective, but it might be shown to be randomly or accidentally to be effective on a paper. Okay? So what kind of error is that? So that's the alpha error or type 1 error. Okay? So that's that one. And then here, this is truly effective. So it is effective, but you're going to accidentally show it to be not effective in a paper. So that's also an error, and that's, of course, then called the beta error or type 2 error. Okay? So alpha is what we set at approximately 5% by convention. And so I'm going to multiply alpha times the total number of studies that are truly not effective. So that's what goes into this box. Okay? Then if I look at the truly effective world, again, this is an error. Okay? And so now this is beta or the type 2 error times the number of studies that are truly effective. Is everybody okay with that? So if you know this and this, what else do you know? Well, you know this and this because this is simply 1 minus that. So, for example, if this is 5%, this will be 95% and so forth. So then you get 1 minus beta and 1 minus alpha. Okay, so now stay with me because this is actually quite a simple, simple algebra, but it's really important for you to understand where we're headed here. So 
when you look at a New England Journal of Medicine paper, what do you know? The paper says this treatment seems to work for sepsis. So what do you know? Do you know that it's truly effective? Or do you know that it's apparently effective? All you know is that the p-value is significant. It's flawless. What you know is it's apparently effective. And how many studies are apparently effective? It's these as well as those, right? So, so it's these two together that are apparently effective. But out of those, how many are in reality truly effective? It's only this particular box, right? So if you just remember that, you're given what's apparently effective, and, you, and what you really want to know is not what the paper says, but you want to know, is this true? Is this really true? And so it's the ratio of the truly effective divided by the apparently effective. And so you're going in this direction, and what it comes out is it's this plus that. That's everything that's apparently effective, but only this is truly effective. So now I'm going to do a little more math here. I'm going to just divide everything by 1 minus beta over TE just to simplify this equation because it's kind of messy. And then it's 1 divided by itself and that divided by itself. So this is how the equation turns out to be. And then finally, if you introduce a term called R, which is the ratio of truly effective to truly not effective, this finally simplifies to this equation right here. This is what's known as the Ioannidis equation. Okay? So what does that mean? Well, that means that if you have a perfect paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, the probability that it's true is given by this formula. Okay? So what's alpha again? What's a typical value for alpha? It's typically 0.05, right? And what's a typical value for beta? Okay? It might be 0.2, or it could be even less, but uh, most often 0.2. So it's those two things in combination of the ratio of truly effective, truly not effective, that determines whether something is, is likely to be true or not. So how does that look? So here is uh, a whole bunch of potential treatments that's been tried for sepsis. Okay, you all know this, right? How many of them are effective? Is there anything that's in, on this list that's, that's been shown to be effective? Yeah, so almost all of these things have been tried in, um, some of them in large randomized trials, and they have been shown to be not particularly helpful, although at one time there was a lot of promise, right? And maybe this one is the one that we have been currently using, although now there's even some... Uh, uh, some new, uh, you know, new points brought up by the, you know, by, the, by the process trial that's out in the New England Journal of Medicine. But let's just use a ratio of like one intervention being potentially uh, important out of 21 total. So the R, remember, is truly effective divided by truly not effective, which is 1 to 20, so it's 0.05. So what that means is if you plug it into this equation, I'm just going to simply put in 0.05 there, 0.2 here, and 0.05 there. Okay, just substituting those numbers in. And then if you do the calculation on, on your calculator, it comes out to 44%. Okay? So 
What that means is if you have a perfect paper that's flawless and you cannot criticize it, and it's about sepsis, the chance of it actually being truly effective, given, this, given these assumptions, it's roughly half. Okay? So that's, that's one major reason for medical, medical reversals. Okay? We, we actually mistakenly think it's 95% because alpha error is 5%. Okay, but if you think that, that's, again, an example of an inversion fallacy because you're misapplying uh, these numbers. So, so, so to do it slightly differently for those of you who don't like equations per se, again, remember we're, we're saying there's 21 superb studies. Some are truly effective, some are truly not effective. Well, how many are truly effective? Well, one versus 20. And some of these are going to be shown to be apparently effective, that is, p-value is going to be significant, uh, and then some of them will be not significant. And if you do the math, again, 5% of these, or one, will be apparently effective by accident. And if you know that, you know that 19 will be uh, shown to be correctly to be not effective. And similarly, in error, 0.2 of these one studies will, will, will by mistake be shown to be apparently not effective, even though uh, it is truly effective. Then the remainder, that is 0.8, is going to be truly effective and, and then correctly, apparently effective. So how many apparently effective studies are there? Well, it's this plus that, okay? And then that, but only this, which is 0.8, is going to be truly effective. So if you do the calculations, it again comes out to the exact same uh, number as that e equation. So you can think about it in terms of equations, or if it's easier for you, you can think about it in terms of logic. But either way, what, it's, what it suggests is that a perfect paper still only gives you about 50% probability that it's true, okay? So it's a major reason for medical reversals. In fact, the, the title of this paper is called Why Most Research Findings Are False, okay? So um, as a final point, um, we said that this is a perfect paper was the assumption, right? But how many papers have you read that's perfect? Have any of you read a perfect paper? Not many any, anyway, right? So here's, a, uh, here's an ambitious uh, paper by um, Kathleen McKibben from uh, McMaster University. And she and her uh, colleagues decided to read every single journal in the year 2000. Okay? So they read all the articles, which, which turned out to be 60,352. And it's a huge endeavor. And they wanted to ask, how many of these papers met um, quality filters. That is, this is a good study that's worthy of your attention. Okay? Any ideas out of 60,000? How many of them were actually thought to be high-quality studies? Okay. They found 4,132, which is less than 10%. Okay? So even if you had a perfect study, there might be apophenia going on. But of course, there's a lot of studies that are really not very good. So it's going to be uh, even more likely that, that it will not be reproducible, okay? So if you were to then say, well, you know, what, you know what? Some of these articles are in poor journals. So I would never submit anything to that journal. I would never read that journal. So don't give me all that other stuff. Let's look at some of the major journals that you would probably pay attention to. So they looked at major journals like New England Journal, JAMA, and Lancet. And so these are the number of articles that were in the year 2000, okay? 
So, and then they had a, what they called a stringent criteria versus a less stringent criteria. And the difference is the stringent criteria meant that they were being you know, very, very picky. Okay? Maybe they haven't had their coffee and, and they're kind of cranky. Okay? And so they're using pretty harsh rules to say this is good paper or this is really crap. Okay? But for the less stringent, they're being a little more generous. Okay? It's not perfect, but it's, it's good enough. And what they came up with is that uh, basically about 5% of these very prestigious journals uh, pass their stringent filter. Okay? Um, and so um, that's, the, um, uh, that's the percentage of, uh, that met the stringent criteria. Uh, and then similarly, there were more that, were, that met the less stringent criteria, of course, but still, overall, it's only a few percentage points. Anybody know what NNR means? Okay, that's the number of articles you need to read before you find one good article. Okay? So even for the New England Journal, you have to read somewhere between 20 to 60 articles before you find one good paper. That's pretty, pretty daunting. What about our subspecialty journals that you might pay attention to, like the Blue Journal or Chest and Critical Care Medicine? How do you think they fare compared to the New England Journal and JAMA and so forth? Okay. If you use the stringent criteria, you had to read the entire year's worth to find one valid article. Okay. And if you were being a little more generous, the NNR is 49. Okay. So what's true is that actually New England Journal does contain maybe the highest quality articles. Okay. And then, and then closely followed by other major journals like JAMA, Lancet, et cetera. But even then, it's a very small percentage of them that are actually valid. Okay? Uh, and then in the subspecialty journals, it's actually a very, uh, even a lower number than uh, these major general um, journals. Okay? So to conclude, you know, we talked about all of these uh, studies being poorly reproducible, and there are many reasons for this. Um, uh, one is, uh, again, poor methodology, as we just saw in this article by McKibben. The great majority of the articles are, are, are of poor quality. And then there are, of course, uh, conflict of interest that, that many of these studies are sponsored by a pharmaceutical company, let's say, and they contain serious biases. But even if these weren't true, there is this, this idea of apophenia, that, uh, that many things that we might be reading may actually not be true. So the bottom line is, if you're in the habit of picking up an article and saying, let's start doing this, then more often than not, you may be making a mistake. Okay? So, so, um, so for you to be a truly an expert in the field, you know, you know, uh, my, my submission to you is that uh, you need to understand how to uh, critically appraise these trials and, th and then to consider the conflict of interest, but especially to be more numerate. So um, as I asked you uh, last time, um, uh, I asked you to consider this uh, saying by Plato, uh, who said that let no one uh, enter who is ignorant of mathematics. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a concept that's very relevant to all of us in, in, in medicine as well. Okay, so thank you.